Hi everyone and welcome to this latest instalment of our Brexit and Beyond podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. I'm Arne Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe and I'm delighted to be joined today once again you might say, by not one, but two guests. Firstly, we have Professor Helen Drake, who is Professor of French and European Studies and Director of the Institute for Diplomacy and International Government at Loughborough University, London. Yes, you did hear that right. Go to the website if you don't believe me. And secondly, we have with us our very own Joël Roland, who is our expert on all things French. Actually, all things French, all things regulation, all things... Actually, he's our expert on all things. So this is going to be good. And we're here to talk about France, the French elections, and what they might mean. So, firstly, welcome, both of you. Hello. Hi, Anand. Okay, Joel, you'll have to sound a bit happier by the end of this podcast. <laughs> Hi, Anand. <laughs> is this a watershed moment for the far right in France is the first obvious question, because they did far better than everyone expected, didn't they? I think it's been described not so much as a watershed, but as a kind of a launch pad, hasn't it? Or a, a sort of a liftoff for the Rassemblement National. It was a surprise and it's totally significant that they've returned so many elected representatives. What is it, nearly 90? Having had only eight. They've been present on the ground, haven't they, for quite some time. And I think Marine Le Pen, the candidate who was just defeated in the presidential election, has made a big thing, a big sort of virtue of being close to people on the ground and so on, you know, and and her, her network. And it's not like they've been absent. It's not like they haven't been anywhere. They just haven't managed to make a breakthrough. So I think the size of their presence in the Assemblée Nationale now, it, it is a, I don't like the expression, but let's use it, a game changer. It's part of management speak that we don't we don't need here. So, but I mean, it is a game changer in the sense that the size of their presence in the Assemblée Nationale, I think, does put the party on a firmer footing, doesn't it, than in recent times, whether that's to do with funding, media exposure, possible control of parliamentary committees and so on. I think it sort of secures the normalisation process, really, that they've been undergoing for, what, over a decade. You know, I'm old enough, so are you, Anand, to remember when it was kind of taboo, really, you know, the the, the Front National as they were then, you know, they they weren't all over the media. It's just, it's been building up and this is a a real kind of turning point for them, I would would say. Yeah, I think it's, it's hard to understate how significant this shift was in terms of the seats they gained there. Vote share in the second round rose by around 50%. This time, this is Marine Le Pen's party. But their seat share rose by 11 times. And that's because voters weren't combining tactically to keep out the RN party in seats. And so the big question really is whether that is, you know, this frontier has broken down sort of once and for all in French politics, or whether this was really a case of people who are sick and tired of Emmanuel Macron, you need to remember even 30% of his own voters from the first round of the presidential election did not turn out. They abstained in these parliamentary elections. So there was certainly a certain level of apathy, which was exacerbated by the fact that Macron was attacking the left bloc as well as the right bloc, saying they're as bad as one another, effectively. That was his tactic and it backfired. And also you had the left bloc, which really thought they could win these elections. And so Macron was enemy number one for them because they're saying, you know, we can beat this guy. We need to beat him into seats. And so the question is, was it those dynamics at play, coupled with the fact that no one thought that the RN were going to win the most seats overall? No one thought they were going to control the parliament. So will those dynamics play out in, say, the next presidential election in 2027, when the idea of putting Le Pen into power might, you know, might bring back that Republican front that that has apparently dissolved this time around. We don't know yet how that's going to play out. So I want to come back to abstentions in a minute, because I think it's important. And I think it does speak to a broader problem in French politics, potentially. But actually, I'm fascinated by uh, Emmanuel Macron, 
you know, it seems to me there are at least three things that are a bit odd about him if you take French politics in a broader context. The first is that ni droit ni gauche thing. I mean, he's, you know, he's facing both ways. And I think, Joel, you've given me the explanation I need there, that actually by not instructing people that uh, Marine Le Pen was a unique problem, that, that I think will come back to haunt him. But there are two other things that are unique about him, aren't there? Firstly, his party's rubbish, to use a technical social science term, that actually the party en marche when it was first, I mean, they, they failed to develop roots. They weren't as organised. And from what you were saying just now, that was a real boon for Marine Le Pen, because her party has roots. It's been there, it's been there for ages, and it works in local communities. There's one more thing about Macron, which I'll come back to you, but I'll let you answer that first. Is, is the nature of the political party crucial in this? So talking about Macron's party, well, let's call it a movement, because as you, you both know that, you know, in the French political culture, party, if we think of it in sort of Anglo-Saxon terms, and particularly British terms, it's a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? So, you know, they tend to have these movements, especially with a recently with the exclamation mark as well at the end, ensemble, renaissance, it's all a bit cheesy to our <laughs> from our perspective, but that's not so unusual, nor is the idea of sort of rallying around a person, having a figurehead, in this case, Macron. So that side of it's not unusual. And then the whole idea of en marche and les marches, I guess that's not, you know, it's not without some sort of merit. I think they look back to Obama and, you know, other kind of political cultures where this type of movement or kind of idea is not so not so mad. But in the French context, you're right, it hasn't really hasn't really worked. And then it's also the case, isn't it, that Macron and his supporters, certainly to his detractors, are seen as, what is it, sort of remote, you know, too liberal, too national, too rich, too white, too this, too masculine. I mean, Macron has sort of surrounded himself, I would say, by a pretty non-diverse set of advisors and supporters and so on. Yeah, and in comparison, Marine Le Pen, just to go back to that, she she probably has done quite a good job of, of appearing. I mean, she's not one of the people, is she? We know that. But the thing that keeps coming back into my head as well is how for young voters, for younger generations, why would they still associate Madame Le Pen, Marine Le Pen, with her baggage, with her, you know, I guess they just see somebody nice blonde with cats or whatever turning up, you know, smiling and and being quite approachable. And I, I wonder whether that's something, you know, that we do need to look at for the future, the extent to which, while we may be, to use another social science term, sort of bang on about the heritage, and we know that it's still there, some research will show that is sort of increasingly irrelevant, meaning that when you look forward, whether or not Marine Le Pen will be the presidential candidate for the party in 27. I'm not so sure. She's going to have some contenders, isn't she? But it's kind of rubbish. It's in a tradition. And one of the questions you were, you know, we were thinking about, wasn't it, was whether it will outlast Macron. Well, that's looking a bit unlikely, don't you think? No, no, I agree. But of course, crucially, Macron won't be a candidate either, which makes it very interesting. We'll come back to how he's going to govern and what it might mean. But I want to talk to you about this question about abstention, because there was mass abstention. What can we deduce from that? And what can the French do about it? And should they be bothered? What we can deduce is that Macron is not a popular president. He won the election, but he won it out of apathy or being the least worst choice in that runoff against Le Pen, rather than the, you know, it wasn't exactly popular acclamation in 2017, but there was an energy behind his insurgent movement, creating this party from the ground up, which has totally gone. As I said, roughly 30% of his voters didn't turn out this time. And the campaign also from the parties opposing him was all about blocking Macron. I think what's really notable is Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who was leading the combined left movement in these elections. 
you know, they, they came second. But he said at the end, we won, we succeeded. We've stopped the president, the president who tied your arms, made you vote for him, even though he was offering nothing. We've stopped him. We've blocked his parliament from that perspective that, that success comes in pushing Macron back. It's being able to prevent him doing freely as he wants to do. There's this perception that he's haughty, arrogant, doesn't want to listen to the French people. Another telling figure, I think 60% of voters following the first round, because it's a two-round election here, said that they, they thought it would be a good thing if he didn't have a majority mm-hmm. because they wanted to put some brakes on what Macron is doing. And so he's now confronted with a parliament which he has a block on the left, which is very, very against him, and a block on the right, which is very, very against him. It's hard to find constructive ground. And there's real opposition in particular to things around pension reform, increasing the retirement age. This is the kind of stuff that's going to be very difficult for him. All right, Helen, do you do you see this result as a rejection of Macron? Or is that just overly personalised? Oh, Macron, yes, as, as Joel has just, you know, amply kind of demonstrated or argued, it is a rejection of Macron. And right from the start, I think it was Sophie Pedder in one of the first books on Macron, having interviewed him and so on, she pointed out, you know, she pointed to the visceral hatred, didn't she, of the man. So it is a rejection of him. But I do think we, especially, you know, from a political science perspective, we need to think about the presidency per se. You know, is it also a rejection of the form of power, the form of top-down and so on power that Macron has particularly inhabited or relished, you could say. And I think there are there are signs, aren't there? Or there's plenty of ways of looking at the fact that the French presidency has, you know, whether it's to do with sort of transnational social trends around authority and deference or lack of, you know, the way in which social media has sort of maybe sucked out some of the, the mystery, if you like, that, that the French president used to hold or people in positions of authority. There's all sorts of reasons why the French presidency and its reduction to five years and the fact that the legislatives have become a bit sort of automatic following on from the presidential election. To put it even more simply, I'm not really sure that the French are kind of looking for a saviour figure anymore or some sort of, you know, some sort of individual with uncontested almost power to come in and solve their problems. I think it's more interesting than that, isn't it? Which takes us back maybe to the matter of abstention. Because I think one particular interesting thing about Macron as well there is that he has shown himself willing to sort of engage in forms of direct debate and dialogue. He literally likes to roll up his shirt sleeves, doesn't he? You know, and he organised the Grand Debat after the Gilets Jaunes and the Citizens' Convention on the environment and so on. So I think he's got the capacity to go to the people, but it hasn't really worked. You know, he's been derided for all of that. And he's, it's been seen as very kind of instrumentalist. And now he's talked about a national council for refoundation. But that may well fall flat. You know, in other words, it's now where it's at is now in Parliament, in the Assemblée Nationale. And maybe the fact that the results this time are in, in a way are more representative, you could argue, of how people are feeling and voting at grassroots level, maybe... Maybe that in itself will have a knock-on effect on political participation, on political interest. So, I mean, looking ahead a little bit, this is sort of half structural, half contingent, this question. How easy will it be for President Macron to build consensus and achieve cross-party compromise? And I mean that in both senses. I mean that in the sense of, you know, and I don't, we are being awfully personal about the guy, but I think it is an issue. But I mean it structurally as well in terms of where the parties are, what they stand for, and whether they can coalesce into something that looks coherent. 
I mean, with regards to Macron, don't you think he is a bit of a comedian? You know, he, he's obviously, is it Simon Cooper said he's the sort of too clever by half, you know, the brightest kid in the class. He can he can put his hand to most things, but he hasn't been very good. You're right at that consensus building. I guess he's impatient. He's a man in a hurry. He doesn't have that sort of long political experience behind him. So there are personal or contingent reasons why he's going to struggle. Plus, you know, he's lost so much credit, hasn't he? You know, there's so much... So much. He's already got baggage. He's only what forty-four, but and been but those five short years have, have have created a lot of baggage. So on that side, the kind of supply side, I think it's going to be tricky. He's showing willing, isn't he? He kind of can't win in a way because he's, you know whether he calls in the all the representatives and of the different parties and different associations, he'll be seen as sort of haughty. If he doesn't do it, he'll be seen as ignorant and so on. But I think maybe the more interesting question is the other side that you raised, Anand, about about the other parties, because we don't know. I mean, I suppose whether on the left or the right, there are certain issues, whether it's the cost of living and so on, where parties aren't really going to want to show themselves as foot dragging and what have you. But it's going to be hard on either side to find coherence. You know, even within NUPES, there are questions around the extent of their coherence. And the same on the right with the Les Républicains. Who and how far do they kind of cohere with Macron? Is this a coalition of all parliament that he has? Yeah, I think he's got, there are two uh, broad tactics he could he could take at this point. One option is to try and form, you know, effectively a, some form of coalition, a, an agreement with a particular bloc within the parliament to say, you know, we're going to see these five years through together and I'm going to, you know, offer you concessions on, on that basis, which is a bit like the kind of coalition building we've seen occasionally in the United Kingdom, if you think of David Cameron and Nick Clegg. Mm-hmm. Um, the obvious partner for him in that setting would be Les Républicains, which is the traditional party of the right in France, you know, more or less analogous to the Conservatives. Um, They've got about 60, I think it is, seats, and that would be enough to get him a majority. And, you know, there's a lot of common ground that they could find, particularly in terms of economic reform, raising the pension age. You know, there would be work to be done, and he probably could put a programme together that would work with them. But uh, there might be reasons why Les Républicains in particular might not want to... uh, you know, go into that coalition if they think Macron is a busted flush, someone who's, you know, now just sort of winding out his five years. Do you want to be tarnished with that brush ahead of 2027? And so perhaps the more likely option is that Macron is dancing around the assembly or more accurately, his prime minister is dancing around the assembly, forming alliances as and when they can. We want to do a green reform. You know, we're going to go to those green deputies. We want to do something on pensions. This is when we're going to appeal to Les Républicains. And so it might be a much more kind of nimble approach, which to some extent sort of perhaps resembles more Macron's hyperactive approach to politics in the first place. And just finally, I say, you know, this is a man who who likes to think he does things differently. And I apologise again for getting perhaps too personal on, on him. But I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to do something which hasn't really been done in French politics before. He He tries to sort of burst convention and find a way to navigate this parliament that perhaps we haven't thought of. So that's the magic third way. We've done a lot of time thinking about 1974 in the UK Lisa, for a number of reasons. And it crosses my mind. I mean, is there a way he can call another election? Is there a constitutional or legal way in which the president or the government can say, hang on a sec, this parliament's rubbish. We won't be able to deal with the challenges facing us. We need a different parliament. Let's have more elections. I mean, constitutionally, absolutely. And is it Article 12 that the president can indeed call fresh elections? I think politically it would be suicidal. To reject the the voters' choice that has just sort of been returned would be very strange. Suicidally 
why suicidally because of brenda from bristol or suicidally unless he waits long enough to show the parliament doesn't work to do it immediately would be politically very badly received put it that way perhaps suicidal is too too strong a word why would he do that you know the, the the elections have just been held so he has to see whether it can work or not and he does hold that and he does hold that right constitutionally but i mean i think there are bigger questions about what's constitutionally possible and what's politically feasible or advisable it was François Mitterrand in 1988 who failed to secure a majority. Does that period give us any lessons? I was thinking about that, and it's true. So that was 1988. So, so Mitterrand, the socialist president, nominated Roca, who did govern for five years by a mixture of these sort of ad hoc alliances. And he did force legislation through. But it's so different now. I mean, that, that was then. So first of all, back then, Mitterrand called those elections on his own terms and his own timing having just won a second mandate. This time it's kind of the elections have followed automatically. And also the context was different. And the rules have changed. You know, so Rockhard was really able to force through legislation using constitutional devices, and that's no longer constitutionally possible or politically advisable. So, yeah, it has been done. Also, the Rockhard government, unless I'm very much mistaken, lost, you know, they lost the next elections and Mitterrand was forced into two years of cohabitation. So it was a period that uh, it might have been experimental, but I, I guess it only has certain lessons for the current situation. Just looking forward briefly, just a couple of questions, I think, about policy. There's, there's quite an ambitious programme of economic reforms that Monsieur Macron has put forward. Will much of it survive this parliament, do you think? I think, yeah, he's certainly going to want to uh, cement his legacy in one form or another, and the economic package is, is a central part of that. So I think, yes, he will probably see there being a duty upon himself to try and deliver the pension age increase in particular, I think, also in the context of the kind of the cost of living crisis that we're seeing and wage spiralling. I think he, he will kind of want to get a handle as he sees it on the economy so again, that means working potentially with the right in the parliament. But I think also he will think about it on a uh, European level. I think this is again one of the tools that potentially in that Macron's disposal is that he had success a few years ago with uh, next generation EU funding, which is a response to the COVID crisis. And he got the kind of the Germans in particular to unpick some of their economic conventions around what could be done in terms of funding at EU level. And he could use EU policy as a way to drip things back into the French political sphere as a result, if you can't govern in France, you can still govern in the EU. And so you can make changes at a macro level, which might have longer term implications for the economy. A comparative question, I suppose. In the United States, if you had a Republican president and a Democratic Congress, the Congress would quite often, particularly nowadays, go out of its way to make it impossible for the president to govern so that come the next election, they can say Democrats are rubbish, vote for us. It's slightly different in France, isn't it? Because Macron's not standing again. His party might not exist by the next election. So what strategy is in the interest of the opposition parties? If you simply say Macron can't govern, he's rubbish, it's no use to you in the next elections. So what? it's a very complicated question, I know, but it's been, it's, it's been obsessing me a bit. I don't understand what your strategy should be in these circumstances. I mean, also Macron's not in cohabitation, is he? He's got a, a government and a prime minister of, of his choice still being the party. I mean, there are some crossover points, really, institutional, you know, some of the things that Macron has been sort of saying he wants to do around institutional reform and about both at the EU level and at the national level about you know, bringing citizens in and making them heard and so on, i.e. changing the kind of almost, the, in the French case, the structure of 
the Republican at the EU case. Am I right in thinking that he has said, well, yes, let's have a convention on changing the treaties and so on? I don't think, Joel, that, that you're sort of first scenario. I, I think that's going to be really tricky, isn't it? Because the other sides, the other parties, they're, they're not committed to that kind of tight hug, are they, for the next five years? They don't want to commit themselves. So Macron's going to have to do this. I like I like you calling it the dance around the assembly. On the supply side, so from the other parties, I mean, they're going to have to really decide, aren't they, whether they are going to try and prioritise even where the things that they say they want, even if Macron wants them to, basically. And don't forget as well that, you know, you said comparative politics and and so on. So a lot of that literature is around the dynamics within parties. And we've already said that French parties are quite fissiparious. They're quite kind of fragmented. And you have figures popping up, don't you, you know, who want to be the leader. So the parties themselves, let alone the blocs, whether it's new or on the right, they're not necessarily sort of homogenous, utterly unified. So in other words, we're going to see a lot of evolution and change and instability, I would have thought. I wonder if, in kind of what is a very oppositional parliament with a, a, a kind of quite radical left bloc and a quite radical far right bloc, it might be kind of the traditional parties who see the most incentive to work with Macron because they want to show that they're still here. There's been so much written about the death of the Socialist Party and the Republican Party, as they're called. And kind of within that noop of left bloc parties, you have some very radical ones and you have the more traditional moderate socialist party, which might want to show, yes, we can still govern, we can still get things through, we're still people who matter. And when Macron presumably dissolves in five years' time, there are going to be centre, maybe even centre-left voters who are looking for a new home. And so if the socialists can show some relevance in the next five years, that might you know, give them some cachet and some credit before the next election. But at the same time, do you want to be tarnished with the Macron brush if he's unpopular? So it really is it's a very, very difficult kind of picture to imagine, especially if he's trying to work both sides at the same time. But yeah, the biggest motivation is for those traditional parties who want to show they are serious parties of government, unlike the radical fringes, which are increasingly present in the parliament. Unfortunately for the traditional parties, they're not quite so popular with the young people. And I think the the young demographic, whether it's sort of as a voting demographic or as a social demographic, are, are absolutely key to to how the next five years goes and how how those different parties' strategies play out. So that would be a sort of a counter-argument that, that I'm not sure those parties are really speaking to, certainly to the, to the younger demographics in the way they would like to. I was going to say, you could say old voters win elections and old voters vote for Macron. So, uh, you know, maybe they're, they're the ones you need to pick up. I don't know. I found it very hard to, con- to concentrate after vociferous France, to be honest. But uh, Helen... In particular, and Joelle, as always, thank you so much for doing that. That was really interesting. It almost made me miss teaching and writing about French politics. It's never too late, and recent events have given us plenty to think and write about. Yeah, because the UK is so dull at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the point, that's the point to finish on. <laughs> thank you both so much. Thank, thank you. Helen. You're welcome.